All right. Happy Friday, July 8th to everybody out there. Thank you so much for joining us for another fun episode of Jackman Radio, a fun live stream. Um, I'm your host, Eric Jackman, with my twin brother, Mike Jackman. Really excited tonight to be joined by a revolutionary, a fellow, a lover of liberty, prosperity, and the co-host of the Ron Paul Liberty Report, Mr. Daniel McAdams. Daniel, how are you tonight, man? Good afternoon, gentlemen. It's great to be with you. Yeah, thanks for coming on, man. Yes. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And um, Daniel and I met in person. Um, when was that? Uh, last month. June 4th. Yeah, June, yes. June 4th. Uh, the Four Horsemen made their way to the uh, to Houston, Texas, to the Ron Paul conference there about the Joe Biden New World Order or nuclear annihilation agenda. And foreign policy was, was heavy on the docket for that. And uh, man, what a what a lineup that you guys put together! I mean, it's just bringing the hot fire, <laughs> talk, talking about checks that Joe Biden can't cash, and uh, obviously Lou Rockwell spoke, and you were the master of ceremonies, and and then uh, you know Ron closed it out and had a couple of notes in front of him, but just fire from the heart for like over for an hour, for basically an hour, up there, and uh, you know that was my first time seeing Dr. Paul in person in twelve years. And, wow. Uh, it was it was beautiful, man. It just it just reminded me of of the lightning that we captured in and starting in 08. I mean, I know for other people it might be before, but for me, starting in 08 and then really in 2012, and I really felt that in that room, and it was really electric and it was inspiring, and, and I've been carrying it with me ever since. So, um, oh, ten years, you mean, Eric? Yeah, we ten years what, ago. Was what did I say? You said twelve years. Oh, sorry, <laughs> everything's ten. Everything's ten years. So. Yeah, we're going to add inflation and binds America. Come on, man! But um, <laughs> it felt really good to be there, Dan, and I really appreciate that event you put on. So, just tell me a little bit about what goes into creating these events and who you like to get in the lineup and, and how you how you kind of decide what you guys want to talk about. Yeah, it was great, and I have to say, I mean, I I just I I. I you know, it's like I'm a kid at a candy store. I just love all the people that are there. I like to see, you know, the night before, a few of you guys were hanging out in the pub and visiting, and that was great. I mean, that's what it's about. I mean, I love the speakers, too, and, and I'm a little bit selfish. I get people who I want to hear talk, um, and uh, so that makes it fun for me. But, you know, increasingly from when we started these in 2016, it's, you know, we keep having people come over and over again because they – they want to be with people that are like-minded. They want to be with decent folks with good senses of humor who like to have a nice time. And, you know, that, you know, all the talks are great. But to me, that's what it's all about is people getting together. And uh, I think Houston was a great one. We weren't sure what would happen because um, we didn't really – I mean, we did a small one in Houston on the drug war back in 2019. Um, and uh, we weren't sure what was going to happen. We know a lot of people in Texas are – our, you know, Ron Paul supporters, but we were at three times as big as the 2019 one. We had to keep like getting extra segments of the, of the big room. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad we could. So, um, I was just, you know, really thrilled with everyone that was there. And I just, you know, the problem with doing these things guys is that, you know, I, I can be kind of, I, I might come across as, as an ass in some ways because I'm, I'm just so nervous about everything, make sure everything's working well, you know, all the things behind the scene. I just wish I had more time to hang out and talk with people and, you know, spending time with people. And that's, that's the only bummer for me at these events, really. Yeah. Well, I know I ran into you briefly at uh, the, the bar the night before and it didn't, it was, it was just surreal to look over and see Ryan Dawson and Scott Ritter just having a, 
<laughs> conversation of epic proportions. I mean, you're you're looking at intellectual firepower that you where else are you going to find that kind of intelligence, that that knowledge, that wisdom, that experience coming together, you know? And courage, right? I mean, these guys, they would, you know, they they want to be they want they want to cancel these people from the face of the earth, you know, and they just won't die. <laughs> no, no, not going anywhere. But yeah, I love uh, love what you do too at the Ron Paul Institute, Dan. With um, I think I don't know if he's still on there, but uh, you know, Congressman Dennis Kucinich, who worked oftentimes with Dr. Paul while they were both in Congress. I see a lot of synergy there with respect to foreign policy. So I love that it's not just Republicans or it's not just you know, libertarians or people who would be called liberty minded, but you've got people who are good on foreign policy from other political persuasions that are part of the Institute as well. That's really the inspiration, you know, for me when I went to Dr. Paul with my proposal back in 2012 and said, hey, how about doing this? Uh, and he said, you know, I don't need another job. I'm retiring. But um, the inspiration for me was um, the press conference that Dr. Paul did after the 2008 campaign where he brought together the um, candidates from the other, quote, minor parties um, in a room, including, you know, Cynthia McKinney and, you know, and, and the others, and Chuck Baldwin. I mean, uh, really some ideological space between them. Uh, Kucinich was there. And the idea was, let's agree on these four basic principles. It had to do with debt. It had to do with foreign policy, um, deficit spending, etc. And so we wanted to build a broad coalition around that that wasn't libertarian or conservative or progressive or liberal. And that's what we've tried to do. And um, it's been a challenge lately. There are people like Kucinich, and we could probably, you know, all three of us could name a handful of others on the progressive side that have stuck with the program. But, you know, a lot of people have peeled away, you know, and, you know, look at people like Glenn Greenwald, who I think of as a real progressive, a good guy who I don't agree with on everything, but who's a good guy. I mean, his enemies are more on the progressive side than they are on the conservative side. So things are weirder than they were when we started the Institute. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that was, um, I think that was an event Jesse Ventura was at as well in 2008. Or uh, was it in, um, where was it there? Colorado? Was that at the... Uh, yeah, it, wasn't, it was a press conference actually on Capitol Hill, I think it was, that he called Oh, out. that's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. He called into that, but Jesse went to uh, Ron Paul's counter convention in 08 out in Minnesota. Yeah. 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 And so and was Tucker Carlson there, too, by Tucker, the way. Yeah. That's Tucker right. flirted with the Ron Paul revolution a little bit. I remember seeing him around. Well, well I, think, I think he likes the style. He likes our style. Tucker's <laughs> great, you know, but um, he's, he's, he's great. But, you know, at that event, it was funny because he flipped out over Jesse Ventura. I, I forget exactly what it was, but Jesse said something that was slightly conspiratorial. And, and Tucker ran for the door, um, which you can't blame him, you know, right? I mean, oh, you think, Dan? I know plenty of conspiracies I could tell you about <laughs> that would make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. Well, Tucker wasn't having it, you know, and he is a good guy for the most part, and so he deserves the success he has. But um, I wasn't at that event. And the weird thing, guys, about that whole era is that I, just, I wasn't part of it at all, you know? Oh, that, I mean, right, that's... Yeah, you well, you were overseas. No, no, right? I was I was working for Dr. Paul. I was on the Hill, but oh, you, know, oh, you were confined such, to the Hill. Yeah, there's such a huge wall between campaign stuff and mm -hmm. and you know federal employees. Mm -hmm. I actually had to go. It's, it's I've actually never said this, but it's sort of weird. I had to go seek out a meetup group 
in Northern Virginia because I wanted to see how the campaign was going. <laughs> so, it's like AA or something. I was like an under. I was an underground, you know, Ron Paul, you know, supporter in my spare time. <laughs> Liberty, Liberty Anonymous, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, so you you worked on the Hill uh, for t how long? Ten years. I was, I think, twelve years. I mean, I started in um, right after nine eleven, and okay. I went until twenty thirteen when uh, he retired. So I guess a little shy of twelve years. So when, when you see shows, because uh, I tried to get a job on the Hill, I even had Dennis Kucinich like helping me. He was oh, wow. hitting up other members, and it didn't work out. And I think it's for the better. Yeah. But um, you know, when you see shows uh, like House of Cards and other shows that examine Washington D.C. and that life. I mean, how accurate is it? Is it is it uh, far fetched? Is it accurate, or is it uh, is reality much worse than what, what we know? <laughs> well, you know, our office was contra mundum. You know, I mean, we were against everyone, so it, I can't really judge it from what ours was like. We had, you know, <laughs> we had a lot of esprit de corps, um, and we had a lot of strong personalities there. You know, my my good friend Norm Singleton, uh, Jeff Deist was the chief of staff toward the end of Dr. Paul's time there. Uh, and uh, my colleague, Adam Dick, who now is with the Ron Paul Institute, was there. And, you know, I mean, it's just the three of us here in the room, guys. So I can say that um, a lot of it felt like I was back in junior high, right? <laughs> there were a lot of jokes about flatulence and, uh, <laughs> and uh, other things I won't even mention. So, you know, it's kind of a way of, of, of letting off steam, really. But, um, so we, we had a whole different experience, but all the other guys were, were totally dweebs, you know? I mean, they were awful, with some exceptions. But, you know, I would, um, I would go to, because Dr. Paul was on the um, International Relations Committee, and I would go to the staff, some of the staff briefings, and they were just horrible. Like, remember, think about all the people you really hated in high school, and that's them right there. You know, and, and, you know, and all with the pickle up the ass kind of thing right there. So hoity-toity. And then come Friday around this time, you see these big carts with about 48 cases of beer going into each office, you know. Uh, yeah. You know, so it's I have no, no problem with people partying on the job. And in fact, I wish all of government would drink constantly on the job um, or, or whatever else. But it was just it was just low quality people, just the worst kind of quality people. <clears throat> And so, a good example is, sorry, I don't want to belabor this oh, and bore you, yeah. but a good example is, okay, I was technically a senior legislative assistant, right? And, um, and so I could never call up a legislative director because they wouldn't talk to me, even if we were colleagues and worked on the exact same issue. Because you have an issue, you may even have a chief of staff who does that issue and he's responsible, he or she is responsible for it, but they literally would not call you. Have your have your LD call me back. Well, my LD legislative director doesn't know this issue and doesn't handle it. Well, I can't talk to you. Sorry. <laughs> you know, so that's just oh, the pettiness. That's petty. There. Yeah. So. yeah. That's one example of a dysfunction. It sounds like. Yeah, it's and, a big um, pissing contest. We uh, we were actually in uh, Dr. Paul's office uh, June of 2011, and we got to see uh, uh, Mrs. Paul, and uh, we got to have a few minutes with the congressman, and oh, uh, this wow. was. This was right when the Boston Bruins, which is our our home team, our favorite hockey team, won the Stanley Cup, and Eric was wearing a Boston Bruins shirt, and Eric said, Congressman Paul, are you a fan of the Bruins? He's like, no, but I suspect you are. And <laughs> it was it, just, just a surreal moment, and, <laughs> and uh, it, it just shows you the openness, though. We, we literally just rolled up and said, hey, we, we, we worked on a couple of your campaigns, but we worked on the 08 campaign in New Hampshire, 
and I guess 2012 hadn't happened yet, but we were kind of asking, pestering a little bit about 2012. Like, come on, come on, Congressman, you're going to well, do no, it again, he, right? He, he said, where in New Hampshire are you boys? I said, well, we're in the southwest pocket near the Massachusetts border. He's like, well, you'll definitely need some border control in that place. <laughs> classic. That's classic. So he, he was already talking about a wall, Dan, if you can believe it. <laughs> He was already exactly. referencing a wall to keep the riffraff from Massachusetts out of New Hampshire. <laughs> not a bad and, idea. <laughs> and then uh, I, 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 I was uh, outside of, uh, believe it or not, Congressman Wiener's office the day he resigned, too, as, as, as it just so happened. So, yeah, lots of uh, when, when Trump talks about the swamp, he's not kidding. But, but he, he's, yeah. he certainly put a lot of swamp creatures in his cabinet, like uh, uh, Mr. Pompeo there, um, yeah. who we Bolton. were talking about. Oh, yeah, Bolton, Elliot Abrams. Yeah. Haley, uh, what's in the Nikki Haley? <laughs> uh. and, and what's funny is all, all of these neocons are going to be invading our state of New Hampshire here. Starting, they're already here. Tom Cotton has been sleezing around oh. up here. <laughs> Pompeo's has been up here. Yeah, they're they're going to be coming here a lot. And Mike and I are gonna we're going to be there for it. We're gonna we're going to be holding them accountable and looking Hopefully to get interviews, podcasting with them if, yeah, if they agree I mean, to it. We'll, We'll be nice with them, but we we will vehemently disagree with their warmongering and their neocon ways. And that's, yeah. you know, the beauty of the New Hampshire primary up here. You know, we have incredible access um, to to all the candidates and then their proxies. A lot of really cool people come through New Hampshire. Oh, that's um, interesting. So I, I know you said you were kind of because you were on the hillside. Did you never really get to come to New Hampshire during any of the campaigns? No, I did. I did. No, I did zero campaign oh, events. Bummer. I never went to any of the rallies. Um, we were just the, the orphans of the whole thing. <laughs> you guys were abandoned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. And it was really, it was surreal for us because we've kind of been laboring away with Dr. Paul for kind of a lot of years before it hit. And yeah, yeah. he was definitely known in certain circles. And, you know, we had our following and, and all that, but it wasn't the explosion that happened. So for us, it was kind of like our little boss all of a sudden was super, was super famous and it, it felt kind of weird. Right, everybody knew it, but you you were into him before he was the thing. Before it was a thing, yeah. you knew about it. It's like when when um someone's favorite band explodes, and they're like, "Hey, man, I had their mixtape before anyone knew who they were." Exactly. You, yeah. you had that Ron Paul Revolution mixtape before before it went viral and blew up and was on blimps and overpasses here in New Hampshire. Who is Ron Paul? Google Ron Paul, <laughs> and uh, automatically, I'm inclined to trust somebody with two first names. Yeah, exactly. There you go. You know. You know, yeah. we um we had our when we worked for him on the hill. We had our Ron Paul T-shirts with our names embroidered on them, and we had to go. We had to, but we had to go down every year for the Ron Paul barbecue. And these were like the you know early to mid two thousands, and that was a whole different experience because we came down here to Ron Paul's district, and it was definitely not Washington D.C. And I remember my first wake up call was we were all these uh, these boys from D.C. coming down to visit. And one of our staff members down here, Penny Freeman, is a good friend of mine still. She welcomed us to the Ron Paul world with dead armadillos and the roadkill that she even <laughs> handed to us. It scared the holy crap out of me. I had no idea what it was she was handing me. Uh, so that's the kind of welcome we got down here in the early 2000s. <laughs> that's amazing. Where did you grow up, Daniel? Where are you from originally? I grew up in Southern California, um, went to school uh, at Berkeley. And uh, stayed in San Francisco for a little while, and then I uh, put myself in exile during the Clinton years uh, in in Europe, and then ended up back in D.C. after that. 
Wow. I mean, it's crazy, too, with Berkeley. When, when I used to think about Berkeley, I used to think a hub of anti-war activity and uh, a bastion of free speech. And now I don't even know if we would be allowed to set foot on that campus. <laughs> I mean, I was so punk, I was so punk rock then that I was I was like a right winger because everyone was so was they were lefty, but not in a bad as bad as they would be now. Like nobody yeah. crowbar like they did then. But I was you know, I went to work for the alternative newspaper, which is the right wing alternative. Even though I had some pretty crazy hair and was in a punk band, um, I was, you know, that was that was your punk rock if you were if you were right wing there. So it was it was kind of fun, you know, ruffling some feathers. Was um was Peter Dale Scott there when you were there? I don't think so. I'm trying to think when he. I don't know if he's an emeritus, um, like, uh, you know, I don't I don't know if he's still teaching, but um, I certainly respect a lot of his work on foreign policy. Yeah. I, was I mean, I was English literature. I did. I, my, I majored in like film as literature. So I, I, I had very little interest in politics back then, you know, specifically speaking. Did you play the guitar? What instrument did you play? Uh, I played it very badly. Yeah. <laughs> that's punk. Yeah. That's the punk spirit. That's, that's, yeah. You have to play it badly. Yeah. You have to oh. play it badly. Yeah. I play the drums. I, I really enjoy uh, post-punk. A lot of the stuff from the, uh, England in the eighties, like, um, Psychedelic Furs, Echo and the Bunnymen. Oh, yeah. Um, Smiths. I really like all that stuff. And then you'll have kids and you won't be allowed to listen to it, right? That's what happened to me. <laughs> so when you, had, when you had kids, you told once them... Once you, you have kids, once your kids get a certain age, you, you can't listen to it. They won't let you. My, my son, who's now in college, he, he uh, became classical music only. You know, And I pushed it on him when he was a baby and it took. And then like, and it was like, turn that off. That's terrible. <laughs> I'm listening... To Mahler, please. <laughs> so, that's, I guess that's punk rock too, isn't it? Like being it being like right now, being into classical music is pretty punk rock. Because yeah, of it, culture. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and and it feels like um, um, one thing I want to talk about, you know, tonight was the the whole issue of, of election fraud and and um, you know issues with election integrity in our country. And I have an article coming out on on uh, Substack for Jackman Radio specifically about the 2004 election. Um, and I really feel like there's a, there's a myriad of evidence for fraud in 2004, especially oh. in Ohio. Um, but everything that's gone on since 2020 with Trump talking about it and a lot of really bad information being put out there. Um, what do you think about, you know, uh, election integrity in our country, Dan? I always like the story that Dr. Paul told, and I forget exactly the details. It was either his first or his second race where there was blatant cheating going on. Uh, and he challenged it, and he successfully challenged it, and found that they had, you know, uh, you know, committed fraud on some of the ballots, and he actually won. So he's saying, "Hey, this is nothing new to me. I was a victim of it myself." And so I think if if um, Trump is a pretty bad messenger, you know, when it comes to this, and I think if it was anyone else, and it were handled a little bit differently, perhaps it might have been taken more seriously. Um, in some ways, he's kind of his worst enemy. But am I surprised? Would I be surprised if there was massive fraud? No, not at all. You know, I mean, all everything is there. I don't have anything specific. I'm not. I don't dive into it. You know, I don't know the details, right? And they say, well, then shut up. But you look at what happened. You look at the mailing voting. You look at the excuse of COVID. Blah 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 blah. And you know, come on. I mean, what we weren't born yesterday, right? Yeah, and, and with the you mentioned the mail-in voting, uh, there was a 2005 commission that was headed by uh, former President Jimmy Carter and uh, uh, Bush acolyte James Baker that critiqued mail-in voting. Um, they didn't ultimately decide against it, but they had you know questions and critiques about it that were very 
very valid. Um, but now when you talk about mail-in voting, people just assume that you're like a rabid QAnon. Um, you're you know, a racist. <laughs> hard, right, yeah, yeah. You're basically a neo-Nazi if you want to talk about elections. African-Americans don't own cars, right? Right. That's what you, they think you're saying. So I just think it's too bad that we can't even, at this point in 2022, even have uh, an even-handed and reasonable discussion um, about election integrity because that's an issue that I, after the 2004 what I saw happen, it was Michael Bednarik from the Libertarian Party and David Cobb from the Green Party who were pushing for recounts and for election integrity um, in Ohio and in other states, and they were involved in lawsuits. and And now you don't even you don't even hear anything about it. So, yeah. Well, hurt. what's interesting is I spent a lot of time as an election monitor when I lived overseas, and you know, like basically all of the hallmarks of a very suspicious or fraudulent election overseas. As I was trained as a monitor. Like every one of those things that were red flags actually happened in 2020 in the U.S., right? So it's like, okay, check that box, check that box, yeah, you know. And even the OSCE and the, you know, which is basically full of American spies or whatever, you know, all of these things happening overseas, red flag, all the things happening here, don't you dare question it. Yeah, it's it's it happens in every election, and I, I remember. Uh, Ron talking about that in his early early races, and of course Lyndon Johnson in in Texas going back when he ran for Senate and clear fraud and, and grifting and criminal activity there. So it's just <clears throat> that was the election of forty eight, right? When he ran for Congress initially, or yeah, yeah the Senate, like yeah, yeah, or Senate. Senate, yeah, I think so, yeah. yeah, yeah. Lyndon Johnson was as crooked as they come. The funny but, thing is, is that you know we, they had to do everything they could to keep Trump out of office again. But he, it's not like he was a real radical, right? Yeah, he said some bad things about NATO and about Hillary. But like we said a few minutes ago, he had all the same bad guys that are still sniffing around the hive. In mm -hmm. There was no radical change in policy. That's what I tell people. He largely maintained the status quo. He continued sanctions. He continued drone bombings. He continued rendering. Um, Guantanamo Bay is still open. All the stuff he, he, right, exactly. His populist rhetoric was nice and it sounded great and it fired you up. But then when you look at an appointment like John Bolton, you look at Nikki Haley and you look at Elliot Abrams, and you look at Mike Pompeo. Yeah. You say, dude, you're talking about draining the swamp. You are putting it on steroids in your administration. You know, what do you, that <laughs> what do you guys think about Mike? It looks like he lost a couple pounds out there. He's campaign ready, man. He's getting ready for 24. I got to give gonna, him. I got to give him credit, man. He's a neocon thirst trap right now. He's really he's looking good. And is he buff? Yeah. He's he well. He's lost a lot of weight. He's yeah. And I, I but do you guys think? Do you think he did it like the real way, or do you think he you know did? Like, I think he, he yeah. may have gone down probably south of the border and did a nip tuck procedure, yeah. some kind of waistband uh, yeah. gastric bypass. Yeah, yeah, some kind of gastric bypass. He he took a page out of Chris Christie's book. He did. Yeah, he did. Well, I I'm remember calling... when uh, when Nadler had that done. It was just terrible. <laughs> yeah. He was like a, Gerald he was Nadler. A, yeah, he was a big fat happy guy. You know, <laughs> I remember we. Um, my colleague Adam and I would go down and we'd eat in the cafeteria and we'd see old Jerry Nadler by himself, big old plate of food. He was just happy as hell eating away. And then poor, and then he got all tucked and everything. And I understand it's not very healthy, whatever, but I mean, I'm a big guy, so I can talk about this, but he was so sad after that. <laughs> oh, he missed, they, they put a sanction, like the sanctions we put on Russia, they sanctioned his food, his carbs, yeah, they put a sanction yeah. on carbohydrates. They yeah, he looks carbs. so unhealthy. I mean, I, I, I mean, I struggle with trying to get in shape and lose weight. So, I mean, that's no surprise, hey. but, 
the hard way is unfortunately it's the best way. It, it is. Yeah. I mean, this, this last year, Dan, I just hit a year uh, anniversary. I, I got a personal trainer who's one of my best friends and I've been working out with her for a year and I've lost 60 pounds. Wow, so that's been, awesome. Keep, you know, I'm keeping it off between 50 and 60 pounds. And uh, I just, you know, I made it a thing. I got to go every week. She has a gym over at her house. It's a, you know, it's not like a public gym with a bunch of people. So I can uh -huh. just go and not worry about a bunch of people. But hey, man, we all love to feast. And no, it's relentless. I mean, you can't, boys, yeah. you can't let your guard down. You know, it's like, oh, I have a bad week. Well, then you got to get back to it. You know. Yeah, yeah. It's just, so. it's just sticking with it, and that, and that's one of the things I'm in awe about uh, Dr. Paul about, man. It's just how, how, just how intact he is. I, I, my friends asked me when I got back from Houston. They're like, I know you worked on his campaign in '12, and you hadn't seen him in 10 years. And what was he like? I'm like, man, he's he's still sharp as he's sharp as a knife, man. And he he's in great shape. He was moving great. He's almost 90 years old. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you can obviously attribute to that, that that guy takes care of himself. Every week when we go to church, we drive by a park uh, where I know he likes to walk and invariably like almost every week we'll see his car parked there Sunday morning, taking his walk. And it gets pretty hot here even early in the morning. So yeah, there's Dr. Paul. Look, look over there. So yeah, he's, yeah. So, so he's still driving himself too. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean that's, that's amazing because I, I I worked uh, I worked on Mike Gravel's uh, primary campaign here in two thousand eight, and he oh, was man. he was cool. He was, seven, he was almost eighty when he ran. Uh, he was badass, and he was it's, still driving himself. It was total badass. Yeah, he came to our office once. I think he signed something. I have a picture with him. He was great. Yeah. Oh, nice. A lot of synergy between him and Dr. Paul. Oh and, yeah. And, and and when people ask me about U.S. politicians and people who've gotten into the highest powers, levels of power in Congress. I cite Mike Gravel and Ron Paul and Cynthia McKinney and Dennis Kucinich. Yeah. Um, I put Thomas Massey on that list now. He's Tulsi you know, Gabbard. Tulsi's yeah. on that list for me. Justin Amash is on that list. You know, these are all people who. Brave. Brave. Yeah. They really, really buck the system and, and trying to exist in, in that cesspit in that system and, and stand yeah. out like that is, it's something to be lauded. So that, that's cool though that you met Mike. He was, yeah, he was great. Wow, what a cool man. He told me. So I drove him all around New Hampshire. Oh, um, that's two thousand for the two thousand. Doesn't get. Practice. He didn't get the recognition he deserved. He really. No, no. You know, young he, people don't know who he is. He was so ahead of his time, man. I mean, this is a guy fighting the Nixon administration with the draft for Vietnam, yeah. and and talking about nuclear testing and nuclear weapons and just really being anti-imperialism at, at yeah. a time when. You know, it was it was uh, not cool. <laughs> not cool. I mean, you'd be called a communist. You'd be, yeah. you know. I mean, it, it kind of comes full circle now. We're all called Russian assets, and you're a Russian disinfo if you're anti-war and anti-imperialism. Yeah. But um, you know, it, it, it was crazy. So yeah, I really enjoyed working in. But yeah, we had we had some epic times up here, man. I mean, between 08 and 12, we had Dennis Kucinich up here, Mike Gravel, and Ron Paul. Wow. We were spoiled. <laughs> we, we were really spoiled, and. Uh, you know, I learned I learned a lot from those guys. I spent a lot of time with uh, Kucinich too. I've gotten to have, have uh, dinner with him, and um, in 2010, he let me shadow him for a day on the hill. So I got to oh, have total cool. access and just be Dennis's wingman the whole day on the hill. And um, something that stands out to me on that day was that former CIA uh, analyst Ray McGovern was in Dennis's office. Oh, cool! Ray's great. I love Ray. Oh. Ray's amazing. And, and Ray was bringing a young man named Josh Steber into Dennis Kucinich's office. And Josh was part of that unit. Um, 
over in Iraq that fired on all those innocent journalists, the collateral murder video that Assange released. Oh, yeah. And Josh, Ray McGovern brought Josh there to, to meet with Dennis and talk about that. And I watched like the, the, the you know, wheeling and dealing and back and forth going basically to, you know, pre before WikiLeaks was like huge. And, and it was uh, it was really interesting. And, and Dennis wow. was receptive to it and he was open to it. And then I got to ride the metro from uh, Capitol Heights out to like Vienna, where Ray McGovern lives off the Orange Line. And I just I got to ride and sit next to Ray for like, you know, 45 minutes wow. on a metro ride. <laughs> and uh, it was it was surreal, man. It was surreal. So th those are those are the kind of people that are my heroes. Those are the kind of people that, that I that I promote to people in politics. And when they ask me, where, where do you learn about what you're into and how do you discover the stuff you discover? I, those are some of the names, you know, and then yeah. it's crazy that it's still hard for some people to get past Democrat, Republican and party labels. Yeah. But, um, you know, figures like all of them, they they transcend all of that. It's funny because a couple of days ago, I got a little note from Rake uh, uh, giving me kudos for something I wrote. And, you know, my kids were there and I said, I just got a nice note from a guy who was a CIA briefer for President Kennedy. You know, I mean, this talk about a legend. You know, this guy briefed President Kennedy um, and he's writing me a note saying that he likes something I wrote. You know, yeah. I mean, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's that's where the stuff brings us. And, um, you know, I, John Kiriakou has been on this show a couple of times, the former CIA officer who blew the whistle on waterboarding. And I got to hang out in D.C. with him and Roger Waters and the oh. Four Horsemen. We went to a, a conference at the press club with those guys. Wow. And, uh, you know, John, I've known John for years, and he's like, hey, man, would you take a picture of me and Roger Waters together? I was like, this is happening right now. I'm taking a picture of John Kiriakou and John Waters together at the press yeah. club. Wow. It was really cool. But when you, the point is when you stand up for what you actually believe in and you're consistent about it, cool things happen. Yeah. Yeah. That was in uh, in New Hampshire, I believe, during the, I think it was the 2012 election. We, we went and uh, did some phone banking um, for Congressman Paul. And the day before, I think it was in Concord, New Hampshire, uh, the lead singer of Blues Traveler, John Popper, had been in the office making calls, hanging out for Ron Paul. And uh, he was, it turns out he was a big supporter. That's, that's yeah. wild. Yeah. It's the, the coalition man that, that, you know, for, for someone like Ron Paul, um, yeah. It just it, it just breaches party lines and, and, and people and, and cultural differences you would never expect to see together. But, you know, here they are. And um, the only political event I ever took my father to because he had a massive distrust of, of government and politicians All right. uh, was to see Congressman Paul speak uh, here in Peterborough, New Hampshire. And uh, after the event, I said to my dad, I said, well, so, Dad, what do you think? You know, he's like, oh, he's great. He tells the truth. They'll, they'll never let him win. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Good instinct. Yeah. So, so I mean, going forward with, with with the Liberty message and and the spirit of the Ron Paul campaign, um, what do you what do you feel like twenty twenty four looks like? Well, I mean, it's <laughs> it's going to be tough. You know, I was just thinking as we were talking and sort of reminiscing a little bit. And you know, I don't want to sound like the old, you know the old guy here, but you know, we had a pretty good coalition of people in the late two thousands of members of Congress on the Republican side who would go to Dr. Paul's office every Thursday and have lunch and talk about what a disaster the Iraq war was. Uh, and that was a great group, but we'd have, you know, 15, 16 members there sometimes. And um, it's hard to see that happening. I mean, a Republican victory, it looks pretty likely, maybe even in both houses, 
of Congress. But to what ends? There's only one Thomas Massey. There are a few yeah. other guys that are and gals who were okay. Um, but I mean, I could be wrong. A lot of people have a lot of faith in electoral politics. I don't. I don't vote. I've not made a secret of the fact that I don't vote because it's it's a complete waste of time. Um, but I uh, I don't see I don't see us getting out of it with by electing Republicans. That's for that's for sure. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that absolutely. Um, yeah, the the Republican there's not many uh, you know Republicans in office that are that are kind of on the same page as. Um, you know, the Ron Paul movement from 2008 and certainly 2012. So yeah, it's, I, I see the neocons coming back, man, especially with Liz Cheney. I see a reemergence of neocons coming back, like with, with these January 6 hearings. Um, you know, I think I really feel like she's using this as a springboard to run in 2024. And uh, there's, there's probably even younger people who don't even re realize who her father is or what, or was, yeah. you know, that he was the vice president and, and uh, just the, just the ultimate in, in uh, regime change and, and foreign policy that's just, uh, you know, completely bankrupt. So that, that, that troubles me a little bit, too. On the left and the right, the neocons are on both sides. They have different labels, but they have the same view, you know. And, and um, at the risk of sounding like, you know, an R or a D, which I'm not, you know, a lot of this is about the corrupting power of money. And this is why we hate the state, right? Because all of this is made possible by the warfare welfare state. That funds all the think tanks in the D.C. beltways, and they churn out the crap. Um, and actually, um, Caitlin Johnstone had a great piece. I think we might talk about it later um, uh, where she, she has a great line. Maybe I don't have it in front of me. Maybe you guys can read. It's like early on in her piece, the nature of think tanks and what they do. And that they have so much influence, you know, so much influence. And it's all funded by us through the military industrial complex. Right. It's, it's just a revolving door. Yeah, I got the piece pulled up. Mike Pompeo is revealing, revealing Hudson Institute speech. Distingu he's a distinguished fellow at the Hudson Institute. So that's I'm right there. distinguished fellow. What does it take to be a distinguished fellow? The Hudson Institute is a neocon think tank, which has a high degree of overlap with the infamous Project for New American Century and its lineup of Iraq War architects and spends a lot of its time manufacturing beltway support for hawkish agendas against Iran. It was founded in 1961 to oppose the Soviet Union and communism. Um, and Pompeo spoke there recently. And Caitlin says here in this speech, which you can read on the Ron Paul Institute.org, Pompeo's speech is one long rim job for the military industrial complex, which indirectly employs him. He repeatedly sings the praises of the weapons that are being poured into Ukraine two of them by name, the Patriot missile built by Raytheon and the Javelin missile built jointly by Raytheon and Lockheed Martin, both of whom happen to be major funders of the Hudson Institute. Wow. Wow. Paint me shocked shock there, Dan. Paint <laughs> yeah. me shocked there. He repeatedly dec decries the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan and eviscerates the Biden administration for failing to control the world's fossil fuel resources aggressively enough in its efforts to prostrate itself to radicals. <laughs> it's it's unbelievable that Mike Pompeo could, can could go anywhere and be looked at as a credible voice on foreign policy <laughs> on any, on anything, you know? Yeah. I mean, I mean, when he was CIA director, he said, "Yeah, we lie, we cheat, we steal. This is this is what we do." Yeah. yeah, it's it's it is incredible that he can, but you know, I mean, we do our best, but they've got all the money, right? Yeah. 
they've got all the money. And um, I don't know if like if there's a paragraph below that where she talks about what think tanks are. I think that is such a great paragraph. Um, uh, think tanks exist. Uh, I mean, I hate to. I don't. I should. I should have it in front of me anyway. No, I can. I'll, I'll find it. It's really in the. It's among the first three or four paragraphs. Um, I can even pull it up. A think tank is an institution where academics are paid by the worst people in the world to come up with explanations for why it would be good and smart to do something evil and stupid. Which are <laughs> that's great. That's that it. Really good. That's really good. Which are then pitched at key points of influence in the media and government. Think tank is a good and accurate label for these institutions because they are dedicated to controlling what people think and because they are artificial enclosures for slimy creatures. I, I mean, I get so jealous when someone writes a great paragraph like that, don't you? I mean, damn, why couldn't I write, you know, something that cool? That, that sums it up. My brother and I love the word ghoul. Ghoul, yeah. We, we, when, when I think about PNAC and neocons... Uh, and Cheney and Wolfowitz and Abrams and Rice and, and that Pearl, Pearl Fife, Wolf, Pompeo, yeah. yep, yeah. Scooter Libby, Bolton, Haley, just just slimy ghouls. Yeah, comes to mind. But Caitlin hit, kind of hits it right there in the head. And and you know I, I know um, we've talked about this before, but the, the, those people just didn't even bother with Ron Paul, did they? When he was in there, they're like, we're not even going to try with this guy. We already know what his answer is going to be. Yeah, they tried to ignore him as much as they could. Because they were afraid of him, they were afraid of his of, of the power of being of being popular, you know. Uh, Dude, and Ron Paul and Dennis Kucinich were a two man peace lobby in Washington yeah. D.C. What scared the hell out of them is when is when uh, Dr. Paul raised a lot of money because that's the thing. The only thing that scares them, as long as we're you know, to be yeah. honest, as long as we're doing our podcasts and stuff, and we don't have you know a ton of money, they'll try yeah. to ignore yeah. us as much as we yeah. can. You know, when, when we first started the Ron Paul Institute, we had a couple of super nasty attack pieces. One was Jamie Kerchick, who hasn't been around lately. I don't know where he is. And uh, Jamie Weinstein over at uh, the Daily Caller of all places uh, about how evil we were. And then they, they realized that, you know, I mean, I hate to say it this way, but we're not a threat to them. Uh, right. So oh, we're just a bunch of gadflies who are, yeah, who are screaming into the wind. But the Ron Paul money bombs. I mean, I think I remember one of them in one day raised like five or six million dollars and broke some kind of huge record. It was a record, and, yeah, the record for online fundraising for a single day. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, that showed them that it was a real threat, and the message brought so many people together. And going to those rallies, there were older people, but there were a lot of younger people too. And you know, obviously, we disagree with Bernie Sanders on a lot of things, but. Uh, you know, other than Ron Paul, you didn't really see a movement uh, like that. Um, other, than, you know, other than Bernie Sanders, and I'm just from my perch here in New Hampshire. From what I observed, um, I did go to a couple of you know Bernie rallies, and I met him a couple times because I'm a political uh, nerd and I like to see and meet everybody wow. and go speak to everybody. And I did see some of that enthusiasm for Bernie's campaign. Yeah, um, the populism was there too, and that's what you know it attracts people, and you know that that goes back a ways. But it's, that's why it's so disappointing to see how Sanders has been voting on sending billions of dollars uh, to buy weapons and send them over to uh, to kill Ukrainians, right? Um, indirectly. Oh, yeah. I think so, all the Democrats are pretty much on board with that, right? I mean, are there any Democrats who were dissenting at this point? No, the Spence. only dissenter, I think, was Thomas Massey, wasn't he? And that was it. <laughs> Everyone yeah, else. No, is MTG, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there were a couple. You're right. Yeah. She's, she's pretty based on it. But I mean, $30 million a day of our money just for this Ukraine misadventure. And 
you know, like you don't hear about it as much as you did a couple months ago. But I mean, if you look at the maps of what Russia has and what, what they've captured and the way it's going, I mean, it's just like it's just such a futile effort. It's 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 just making the money for the defense contractors and, and pushing a narrative. That's that's all it looks like to me. I don't know. The Russians took Lysychansk a couple of days ago, and I saw something today where they had a um, they put up a huge display of all the weaponry that they captured. And it's like tank. It looks like a used tank lot, right? Tank after tank, and then endless, endless Stinger missiles and everything. Basically, we're sending this stuff over, and it's. I mean, there was a time where we wouldn't want the enemy to capture our stuff and reverse engineer it, but now our our stuff is so crappy that nobody wants to reverse engineer it. But it was amazing to see, and they don't even care, you know. And in fact, I have some admiration. I guess there were a couple of Ukrainians. They got a hold of. Um, I don't have it in front of me. I think a couple of howitzers. And it was something like $70 million worth of equipment. <laughs> they, they sold it to some Russians for 120 grand. You know, I mean, those guys, those guys need to be on our, on our board of directors or something. We like it. capitalism. We like yeah. capitalism. Yeah. That, that's the kind, that kind of waste reminds me of in Iraq when, when uh, one of our vehicles would be damaged, something that was worth like a million dollars. Screw it. We're going to leave it. We're just going to blow it up. We'll get another one. Blow it's it up. Just, the same waste, the same malaise and waste, and and just you know, it, it just into oblivion. I mean, it, it's, it's hard. Very to satanic, you know. All of the weapons that were left in Afghanistan. Um, uh, oh yeah, let's overthrow Gaddafi and leave a bunch of weapons there. And oh, here's a good idea. Let's send them over to Syria and put them in the hands of Al Qaeda. You know, which is exactly what happened. And uh, Senator Paul, you know, he dinged uh, Hillary about that when they were having a that hearing about Benghazi, you know, what about these rumors that we were, you know, that this whole Benghazi thing was basically an arms deal gone wrong. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's pure evil, but they love these weapons being out there because as Dr. Paul says, I mean, it's chaos. They love chaos and that's what it uh, produces, you know. There has to be a boogeyman out there to justify appropriations of a trillion dollars every year. I mean, it's, it's, it's more than that. They say oh, it's under a trillion. It's really more than that because, you know, we don't take into account black budgeting and what the intelligence agencies do to get those illicit funds. Yeah. Um, and forget know, about what about opportunity costs too. you know, all um, this money sunk it, down the tube. Everything, um, man. The grift. It's unbelievable. The, the, the grift is unbelievable. But but that's that's why that that message of, of non-interventionalism and and not getting involved in this stuff is so powerful because it just wipes the whole damn slate clean. And you it's hard. You... It's hard to be a non-interventionist at times like these, because basically, I mean, here's what, here's what they'll throw at, you know, people like us. Oh, so you think it's really cool that Russia has invaded Ukraine and blown the whole thing up. What are you, some kind of monster? And so, th but then you have to sit down and say, okay, well, let's have a, an adult conversation about why this happened. Do I think it's great that things are getting blown up? Um, no, I think it's terrible. I hate war. But let's talk about why this happened, you know. Um, and nobody wants to have that kind of conversation. They just want to throw mud and call names. So it gets pretty tiring to do this over and over. And I think this time is worse than before. Um, everyone's terrified of sounding like they're some sort of a, um, an agent for Putin. But um, I'm, an I'm an agent for America, right? If exactly. we didn't get involved in all this crap, we'd be a lot better off. And we wouldn't have, you know, three quarters of the world hating us, not only hating us, but just dreaming of the day that the dollar is toast 
and we're out there eating bugs because that's what they all want. Oh, you know? For the 2030, uh, yeah, and you will you will own nothing. You will be happy. You will eat bugs. Like, like Alex Jones, you, you'll, you'll be in your little metaverse pod eating bugs. You'll have a big, big picture of Klaus Schwab that you will prosecute. You will bow down to that every day, Dan, and say, mm, I love those bugs. I love the way those, those bugs taste. Steak will be a rare meat candy that you have once a week after you've come home from, you know, you're uploaded, you know, with the metaverse with your overlords. You know, they, they laid out, though. They said it back in like 2016. They said all this stuff. Um, yeah. But I, I did have a question for my friend Dylan, who's a huge fan of uh, the Ron Paul Liberty Report and of yours. Um, he wants to wanted to get your take on China and Taiwan. And if you thought that, you know, uh, China might invade or what, what that looks like over there. Well, you know, I spent a lot of years doing foreign policy for Dr. Paul, and I spent a lot of time um, meeting with my Chinese counterparts at the embassy. And, you know, I, in, my, in my view, the last thing in the world China would want would be to invade Taiwan. Now, they could be provoked into it, which is what the Russians were provoked. I mean, let's not forget uh, the, um, the Donbass. Uh, I'm sorry, guys. That's uh, his Russian overlords calling him. Exactly. Putin's calling. He's calling. It's a red how many bottles of vodka this week? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, uh, the, the, the Donbass um, in 2014 literally begged Putin, please absorb us, please uh, take us in. We want to be part of Russia, please. And Putin said, no, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to go there. I, he rejected it. In fact, that made him very pop, unpopular at home because as many experts say, he's actually a moderate in Russia, right? He's not an extremist. So and the same thing is happening with the Chinese. They don't want... It's bad for business. The Chinese, of all people, are, are the best with, with business. It's bad for business to have this big brouhaha over Taiwan. I remember talking to... Um, oh, did we lose uh, Mr. McAdams, Eric? What happened? I think he just, he just cut out. But uh, he'll come back. He's like, he'll come back. We always come back. Yeah. What a cool conversation. <laughs> Dan's awesome. I'm sure he'll be back. But uh, do we have any comments you want to throw up on the screen that we can respond to until yeah. uh, we get him plugged back in? Sounds like he had some kind of phone call coming in from, uh, I don't know, he had something coming down there. He had a, a steak coming up. Oh, thanks, John B. Sloop John B. I love you, John. You're a good man. Infowars.com. Real vitality. Tell, tell people watching like about buy me a coffee and Patreon. Yeah, so we have a couple of... Uh, uh, ways to support Jackman Radio. If you guys like what we do, you like the impressions, you like the information we put out, uh, you like our articles on Substack, we do have a Patreon, and that is patreon.com slash Jackman Radio. And we also uh, have just started uh, one on buymeacoffee.com. And you don't have to be a member to, you know, to give, oh, he's back. Did, we, did, uh, did the red phone get you? That was kind of weird, wasn't it? It yeah, wasn't. The, it wasn't was Putin that, honest. China was that, Pompeo, was that? It was either. It was either Pompeo or the ghost of Donald Rumsfeld. China. <laughs> <laughs> we were Donald Rumsfeld heard us from hell talking about Rainbow Govern. He was like, "Oh, <laughs> yeah." That was the, that was the greatest. And Rainbow Govern confronted Donald Rumsfeld and used his own words against him. Yeah, it was Courage. incredible. Brave. Yeah, oh, but I think um, Dan was talking about Taiwan and China. I, I don't know when it cut off. I just, I, my point was just that the Chinese are very conservative. The last thing they want to do is have a war. It's bad for business. Um, the U.S. wants a self-fulfilling prophecy like they had with Russia and Ukraine, uh, and they're pushing it. They want it to happen. And right. I mean, you know, 
The question is, will our economy collapse before that happens or not? Who knows? So no matter how bad things get and, and you know, five, six, seven dollar, um, you know, uh, a gallon for gas, huge inflation past eight, nine percent, you know, a couple bags of groceries for 50, 60 bucks. These warmongers are just going to continue to just push this and they don't care how much it's going to cost. And uh, I think that's one of the things that's destroyed our country the last couple of decades, longer than that, arguably. But really, I'm only 35 and just what I've seen in my own life since 9-11, the trillions that we wasted in the Middle East and everything that we've printed and, and borrowed and spent. And here we are. We're on the precipice now. That's kind of what I, I, I feel like. Yeah, and the elites never suffer. They always they always do much better. You talked about the revolving door and everything. Um, so that's why I mean, my 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 approach to the whole thing really is just about the the money, because I don't think with a lot of Americans you're going to win necessarily on a philosophical argument. And it's not that they're dumb, but everyone's struggling to um to survive. But if you tell them, hey, you know why you're having such a hard time filling that gas tank? You know, it's not Putin's tax hike or Putin's price hike or whatever Biden calls it this week. It's the U.S. government on, man. foreign policy. Yeah, come, on. come on, Dan. You're telling me you're not willing to pay a little extra at the pump so Hunter can pump? Is that, <laughs> is that what you're telling me? We're going to give free pipes to everyone, man. Hunter's going to come by and use it to make his new Picasso. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be incredible, Dan. We're going to see it. You're going to see it. You're going to see it stimulate. This is good. In Dan, come on, man. This is no, good no, inflation. No, hold on. Don't use the words pump and stimulate when you're talking about Hunter Biden because this is a family Dan, program. This is good inflation, though, Dan. Come on, man. Dude, the, the Orwellian language that they use, and, you know, it's like that classic adage of, you know, tell me it's raining, but I know something else is going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if, I, there I, hasn't, I mean, if you want a poster child for the absolute um, moral corruption of the elite, it's this horrible thing. I won't go into details because it's too awful, but this horrible picture that the Daily Mail had on of, of Hunter Biden in his isolation tank being treated for his drug addiction while I taking drugs and doing other things. I mean, just put that picture on a poster and just run on that. You know, like these are the people who want to rule you. It's just so disgusting. It's true. It's true. And but Mike, you know, Mike has said this to me Um you know, why, why is it that Biden's children are drug addicts? You know, why are they so such broken people? And look, look at the environment that, that, that they had to grow up in. Yeah. Their father is Joe Biden, a 50 year gangster, you know, regional warlord from Delaware. And uh, who knows what their childhood was like, but um, that's really all the. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. That's, that's all the other side has to run. You're you just. Put a poster up of, of Hunter, and that laptop, man, is the gift that keeps giving. They'll superimpose the gas prices above the photos from the, the leak. Yeah, and I think exactly. we, we I think we got something that maybe um, the Bush administration would have run against John McCain in 2000 when they talked about the illegitimate children. Yeah, exactly. I think it's very similar to that kind of mudslinging, you know? Yeah, yeah. Of course, McCain himself was a, was a gangster. So yeah, I mean, literally. <laughs> yeah, there's a great clip of his wife, Cindy, talking about Jeffrey Epstein saying, we all knew it. We all knew who he was. Everybody knew. You know, they all knew it. And uh, one of the one of the campaign planes that McCain used um, in 2000 was the same one that some of the Saudis were flown out of the country after 9-11, which is so rich. It's, it's such a rich uh, irony, you know. So. Yeah. Oh, Eric, I'm sorry. Did you have a? Well, I was going to. I wanted to get Dan's thoughts on the energy crisis, and you know, 
we're liberty we're, we're liberty minded people we want less government we want less state involved in our lives if there was a libertarian or someone of dr paul or our perspective in charge right now i mean what do you think would be the appropriate response for the energy crisis that we're facing well, it's easy to say just remove all the restrictions because most of these here are ideological. You know, a lot of them are ideological. And there was a great quote. I'm sure you guys saw it, and, and I'm, I'm at a disadvantage here. I think it was the CEO of Chevron who said, nobody is ever going to build another refinery, ever. It's not going to happen. And that's because the government's official policy is we want to get rid of the internal combustion engine. We don't want gasoline in the future. So who is going to invest the amount of money it takes to construct a refinery knowing that the profits are at least 10 years out um, and knowing that 10 years out, they want to do away with the product, you know? So, you know, you have, you have the government creating these problems for ideological reasons and then going and trying to solve the problems and making them worse, like going to, to beg MBS for some more oil over in Saudi Arabia or, you know, or, um, or talk about capping oil prices. You know, this goes back to wage and price controls, and it's hilarious. I was, I had, we had um, a guest on our show this morning, and I said, this is like, um, this is like the no-fly zone arguments uh, in economics. The idea that the Russians will all of a sudden say, well, you know what, I think we should probably just take 60 bucks for a barrel. I think, you know, that sounds like a good idea. I mean, these are serious people saying these things, and this is the solution out of it. So, you know, it's, I mean, government exists to create these problems uh, and invent reasons to try to to solve them, and, and they actually just make them worse. Right, exactly. Um, we got a little uh, chat, super chat here. Have you guys talked about Sri Lanka yet? Got got here late, and he's John B sent ten dollars. Thank you, John. I don't know a lot about Sri Lanka right now. I know that there's unrest, just like there is in the Netherlands, and people are raging against the machine over there. They're taking to the streets. Um, I don't know, Mike or Dan, have you guys been paying attention to Sri Lanka at all? Or, I mean, Sri Lanka is our future. I mean, they've completely run mm. out of everything, full stop. You know, it's it's um, this is where we're heading, and it's a cautionary tale, and it's a tragic tale uh, of what's going to happen when you literally have no money, nothing to buy, and nothing uh, <laughs> zero. It's gone. It's done. And uh, it's interesting to see though what happens because. Because of what's happened geopolitically, because of the U.S. is you know pursuing this ridiculous global military empire, the Sri, Sri Lankans have, have gone to the Russians and said, "Hey, can we make some kind of deal here? We're, we're totally out of money." And what and the Russians are going to say, "Hey, okay, well, you know, what do you have?" The same thing is happening in in Africa. The Russians and Chinese are making a lot of deals, and what we send over there, we send over a bunch of pencil necks telling them what kind of flags they need to hoist at which part of the month, you know, which month of the year or something. So um, it is a cautionary tale, and we're definitely, I mean, we're heading in that direction. There's no question about it. Yeah, that, that, that's frightening, but it's, uh, it, could, it could be avoided. Um, like you're seeing one side, you have a complete police state versus complete breakdown of uh, society and of, of uh, you know, uh, an established order. And, yeah, and we're uh, seeing we're seeing the breakdown in, in in not just in Netherlands but all throughout Europe. You know, you're seeing the farmer protests in in Netherlands. We're joined by the Germans at the German Dutch border. The Poles are in on it. The Spanish are in on it. The Italians are in on it. You know, it's nice weather. Everyone loves good protests, but the the Dutch are pretty serious about this, and they rightly point out that this is a power grab. This whole nitrogen thing is BS. 
it's a power grab because they want to get rid of farms and farmers. And uh, there was a young gal, I forget her name, a Dutch woman. She was on Tucker yesterday. And she said that they want to take their land and they want to use it to house immigrants that they want to bring in uh, from third world countries that we blew up and destroyed. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, it's interesting to see. What's also interesting to see is the brutality of the Dutch police. You know, and you don't think about that. You think of the Europeans as not being as brutal. But if you see, um, and actually kind of remind me of January 6th, you saw that, you guys probably saw that van, police van pulled up. A bunch of guys and gals jumped out of it dressed in street clothes. It started yeah. getting all agitating, you know, like they were trying to provoke. Right. And to their credit, the Dutch people saw what was happening right away. And fed, 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 fed. Yeah. Yeah, I, fed I love that. Fed. I love that meme you posted, Dan. Uh, it was a quote, I think, from Massey, who said, I'll start paying attention to these hearings when we get the uh, um, federal or capital police or whoever it was that invited the protesters to come across the, the uh, pick the lines. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The Dutch people pushed them right back to their van and they, they tapped on the van and they all got back inside. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A secret yeah. tap, too. It was pretty it was pretty fascinating. They're all glowies. Oh, yeah, they're probably just all glowies. Total confab of glowies. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask you about RFK Jr. I know you he spoke at a, a Ron Paul Institute um, event. Tell me about that and about meeting him. I mean, he's he's one of my heroes too, Daniel. I mean, I, I love I love the Kennedys. I got I got Jack Kennedy there behind me. All um, right. You know, we we could do a whole episode about the Kennedys. But uh, what was that like, man? Meeting RFK Jr. and 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 that synergy of Ron Paul and Robert Kennedy Jr. It was pretty surreal, you know. I mean, I, I, it was at a conference last year, last summer in Washington, D.C., and it was the war on us, and it was really like the post-op to COVID. I mean, this is they, they, they turned their guns on us, and that was the whole theme of the conference. Uh, and he was the penultimate speaker, and we had a, a VIP reception the night before uh, where you just kind of hobnob and everything. And, and it, I have to say, I, I try not to fanboy too much, but here I am. I'm standing there with a glass of sparkling water in my hand. I'm talking to RFK Jr. and I'm sitting. I'm standing next to Jeff Dice's wife, um, and uh, and I and I and I just say, Paula, can you please snap a picture of, of me and RFK Jr. because this doesn't happen very often. Uh, and thankfully, Paula did that. And and I think that's the one that you that you put up there. Um, he's a fascinating guy. He's very serious. Um, um, he. <laughs> I mean, he's a patrician type. He really is, and that's that's fine. I like that. Um, he's not a man of of a, of a ton of humor, but he also has taken a lot of flack. Even a Kennedy being canceled—that's pretty amazing. In my opinion, he's the last great Kennedy that we have in the public sector speaking the truth yeah. in the spirit of his father who fearless. was murdered, yeah, in the spirit fearless. of his uncle who was murdered. Yeah, yeah, and he he carries that man. I see it in his eyes when he's doing interviews. Um, just, just the passion, the, uh, the 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 genius, the intellect, the knowledge of history. I mean, his his uh, autobiography uh, called I think it's called Lessons Learned. I forget exactly what it's called, but I read it. It came out a couple of years ago, and just what he absorbed as a young child, um, growing up in that family. You know, he was born in like fifty two or fifty three, so he has memories of of his uncle being killed and obviously his father. And um, he just says, you know, this is a culmination of the, you know, uh, 70 plus year uh, war my family had with the CIA, with yeah. Americans intelligence agencies. And he's not afraid to call a spade a spade. 
He's been great on the environment. He's great on foreign policy, the surveillance state, the flu world order of the last couple of years. I mean, he, he is he's a man of real integrity, and I have a lot of respect for him. And that was great. That, we had him on we had him on the Liberty Report just before the conference. And you know, because Dr. Paul, Dr. Paul's view is that was the first big American coup, is when the, is when he believes the CIA killed JFK. And so to see the two of them talking about it, because Dr. Paul knows a lot about it. Uh, you know, probably um, he's you know he and Bumper Hornberger. I mean, they they really know a lot about it. But to see Dr. Paul and RFK Jr. talking about the assassinations and the wow. CIA, I mean, of course that was the um, that was the one show that YouTube took down, right? And uh, but oh, really? Yeah, they took that down. Uh, but thankfully, Odyssey and Rumble have a have a better perspective on freedom of speech, uh, so it's still available there. But that was a really great episode. Yeah, and that's the great thing about what you do, Daniel, with the show is is you guys have people on that are not just Republicans or just Libertarians, um, but people who are great on big picture issues, and that's what we're all about at Jacqueline Radio. Um, we're just at an hour. I don't know if you guys, if you got to get going, uh, Daniel, or or, or um, unfortunately, what, uh, I I do have to crash on something. I'm so sorry. Yep, we understand. Well, this has been awesome, Daniel. You know, it's great to get you on and. Um, We'll be seeing you again. Uh, like I said, Reed Coverdale and I will be coming down to the next uh, Ron Paul Institute uh, event. I think it's the next one. Is there one before that or the one in no, September? No, no. The next one is in September. Yeah, yeah. Look forward to seeing you guys. It'll be great. And hope we'll be in touch before then. But um, Oh, yeah, we will. And that one deals with the surveillance state and, uh, right? Yeah, the anatomy of a police state. Uh, and it's, uh, we'll, start, we'll start announcing some people soon. I don't... I don't want to spill the beans. We did announce Jeff Dice will be there. My good friend from the Mises Institute is going to be there. Nice. Well, I'll tell you, Daniel. I'm going to invite Tulsi Gabbard. I'm going to I'm going to see if she's going to be around. She she should at least come and watch that and be there. Yeah, she's she's very good and very brave. She is. She's good. Well, Daniel McAdams, folks. Daniel, thanks for joining us, and uh, this has been great. And just tell people where they can find you, how they can support you, and uh, check out your work. RonPaulInstitute.org is our website. We've got the conference coming up. Also, young people, if you're if you're an upper division undergrad or grad student, we've got a great one-day Ron Paul Scholar Seminar. Uh, it's the day before the conference. Go to our website and you can apply. Uh, we've got scholarships. So uh, a few qualified people. Last year we had Thomas Massey as our luncheon keynote speaker. So it's it's that kind of great event. Um, it's very few uh, openings. So any young people out there listening, we'd love to have you come on and we do the daily Ron Paul Liberty Report, of course, on YouTube and Rumble and Odyssey. So we appreciate everything that you guys do. And I personally thank you so much for having me on your show. I love you guys. You guys are great. And you're awesome, man. Thanks, Dan. I really appreciate that. Thanks for joining us. Folks, everybody, check out Daniel McAdams and the Ron Paul Institute. We're all about peace. We're all about prosperity. We hate war. We hate surveillance. We hate the government. And we hate the men in our lives. We hate hate censorship. We hate all that. And we love freedom and we love peace. So thanks for joining us. Subscribe to us. Check us out. If you want to contribute, patreon.com slash jackmanradio. Buymeacoffee.com slash jackmanradio. We're on all the major platforms. We appreciate your support. We love you and we'll see you next time.